Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Wick Realty. Wick helped me buy and sell a home twice now, and that home is where I record most of my podcasts, uh, including this one, and where I do all the writing for Brick and Elm, my print magazine. It's been a great house, and I'm just so thankful for uh, Wick Realty for helping us find it. In a city filled with realtors and real estate companies, Wick truly is one of the best. They're invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're in the market for a home, if you're buying or selling, if you're looking for investment property, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's Wick Realty, W-I-E-C-K. Today's guest is Doug Woodburn, or I guess I should say the Honorable Judge Doug Woodburn, though he insisted I call him Doug on the show. He's the judge on the bench at the 108th District Court in Potter County, an elected position that he's held since 2008, uh, and he's since been re-elected for three other four-year terms. Before that, Doug spent his career as a family lawyer. He comes from a family that has literally been in Amarillo since it was founded, or just a couple of years after the city was founded. Judge Woodburn is nearing the end of his career, and so we spoke about his work as both an attorney and a judge, whether the local courtroom is anything like we see on TV, which was interesting to me, and what he's learned about Amarillo in the process. So here's Doug Woodburn. Doug Woodburn, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Jason. Happy it, to be here. Well, I'm I'm glad to have you. Um, I was telling you right before we started recording, this is you're the first judge I've ever uh, interviewed. I have interviewed attorneys before, um, but maybe that will add a, a different wrinkle to the conversation. I, I want to start with you, though, like I do with all of my guests, and just ask how you ended up in the Amarillo area in the first place. What brought you here? Well, uh, it was real easy for me. I was born in Northwest Texas Hospital in 1949. So uh, I have uh, been a lifelong resident of this city, except for when I was in school at various at, at uh, Tyler Junior College and then Amarillo College and then Texas Tech. Okay. Did you, uh, I guess, did you go to Amarillo High School? I went or? to Amarillo High School right. when it was downtown before right. it burned. And uh, played football for the Sandys. I was a middle linebacker. Got a scholarship to Tyler Junior College, okay. and they cut me during the second week of two days. And I said, "Well, why'd you cut me? They, I was on, I was on scholarship and everything. They were going to have to pay for that." And they said, "Well, you just weren't very good." <laughs> <laughs> so I had to lick my wounds, and uh, actually, I really, really enjoyed that school a lot. And I came back, went to Amarillo College, and then eventually went to Tech. Was was coming back here something that was on your radar, or did, were you one of those kids that thought, I'm going to go away to college and spread my wings elsewhere? You know, frankly, I never thought about not coming back to really? Amarillo. I'll give you a little history. Uh, my my great-grandfather, J.M. Russell, came to Am- the Amarillo area in 1889. He okay. was a lawyer in Minnesota. His wife had uh, some uh, medical issues that they felt like being here where the wind blows, it would be more beneficial to her. I'm not sure they were right about that. but 1889, you can't come to Amarillo any earlier than that. Not and much, no, sir. Uh-uh. And uh, uh, my, my great-grandfather was actually uh, the author of the Amarillo 
uh, city charter wow. that is still in effect. It's, that's why they still just get paid forty dollars a session. Uh, but um, and my great uncle, uh, he had nine children. My great grandfather did, and one boy, and that was Horace Russell. And Horace uh, was on the first uh, city commission for the city of Amarillo. Okay. So our, my roots are so deep here. It's un, and uh, and happily so. I've, I've heard my a lot bro- of stories. Of people that came to Amarillo for health reasons, you know, yeah, and it's that hard seems to so weird to us now. <laughs> but maybe that dry air was—I guess—must so. have been effective for your family. I guess so. Mm. Um, that's that's a really deep connection, though, to the city. That's true. And then uh, all my both my parents had gone to Amarillo College. I was glad to come back and go to AC for a semester. I think it's one of the finest schools in the nation. Uh, and then I went to Tech from there. My brother David is still on, has been for 16 years now on the board of Emerald College. So, again, uh, my, my, that same Uncle Horace was uh, one of the founding members of the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum as okay. well. So if I hadn't come back to Emerald, I think somebody in my family would have shot me. <laughs> Or found you and just brought you back yourself. That's right. Did you always want to get into law? My mom uh, suggested it. She used to work for a uh, an oil and gas producer who had an office in what was then called the Petroleum Building mm-hmm. uh, at uh, across from the Fedway Building at uh, I guess about Ninth and Fillmore, and I mean Ninth and whatever. But at night, she would do typing for Walter Wolfram, who is still, who recently passed away just like two weeks ago, but was a terrific lawyer. And uh, my mom was the one who said, you know, this is something you ought to really do. She said, but I hope you don't represent any criminals because, you know, they're always guilty. (laughs) 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 So uh, I I graduated tech law uh, in uh, 1975. Uh, Caroline and I had uh, our first child in 1975. That's Josh, who is now a board-certified family lawyer here in Amarillo. Right. And then we have uh, two other daughters that were born here in Amarillo. Josh was born in Lubbock. I came here. I started working for a personal injury lawyer. Uh, decided that really wasn't what I wanted to do. Ended up going out on my own and... Uh, Really did quite a bit of criminal law at the early stages in my life. Got very involved with uh, what I call dysfunctional family law, which is divorces and child custody issues and all that sort of thing. And uh, I really, really enjoyed it. I became board certified in family law. In fact, I was the chair of the family law section of the state bar of Texas. It's about 6,000 members. uh, And... uh, Really, really, really enjoyed that part of my life. Uh, Tell me why why that specialty was something that you enjoyed. I mean, there's a lot of directions you can go as an attorney, a lot of specialties. True. Why that? And, and most, many, many, many lawyers absolutely despise being involved with divorce laws. I had six bricks thrown through various windows wow. in my office, my home, and my car over the years. Um, from but dis- the answer to your- spouses is that. <laughs> Well, you never really knew. As a matter of fact, I had a friend on the police department that 
we kept gathering the bricks, thinking that somehow there'd be a foot, fingerprint or something on it, but it never happened. I'm pretty sure I know who was doing it, but uh, that's another long story, yeah, okay. so I won't get into it. But uh, the answer to your question is, I came from a broken home. My folks mm-hmm. divorced when I was, I think, in the sixth grade, and then my mother was killed not too long after that. And, uh, you know, uh, I had a series of step-parents on both sides, and I, I think I just really can relate to the things that kids are going through yeah, in those yeah. circumstances. I I, uh, I never took a case that I didn't believe I was on the right side of the issue, and uh, anyway, I was, I was fortunate to be successful and happy doing what I did. I I really enjoyed practicing law very much. And those can be very complicated kinds of cases. I mean, there's some thorny issues, whether it's the the custody stuff or, you know, finances and husbands and wives. I mean, I I, I wonder if they're, you know, beyond your past and and some of the things maybe that attracted you to it. Like, is there a part of a, a personality that... That makes well, you a good family lawyer? Uh, yeah, I told you uh, earlier that, you know, I, I was a football player, and I was, I was, I've always been very competitive. And part of being a good trial lawyer, obviously, is you got to be very competitive. Mm-hmm. you got to be very focused. you got to train yourself. You've got to do lots of, uh, un, uh, of involvement in discovering what's ticking in every case before you can really pursue it. And so uh, I guess that part of me, I'm kind of anal retentive. So uh, as I think most trial lawyers are, you know, they're up, you look at all the various ways that things can come at you and prepare for that. So I did enjoy that a lot. That kind of work gives you a, a, front, row, a front row seat on families and marriages and how they work and, and how they fail. I, I wonder if it's taught you personally, like... Anything well, about yeah, marriage, yeah. You know, anything it, about uh, there, there are some things I'm really proud of that I was able to accomplish for kids over the years. Uh, probably my best success was talking a physician friend of mine into not getting divorced, hmm. and uh, I counted that as one of my finest moments. As a matter of fact, it was funny. I I did represent lots of professionals, and and most of whom I knew. Uh, but I, I always made it a, a condition of my representation of uh, either party. It seemed like it was usually the wife that was married to a highly successful professional to, to let them know if it really got into a knockdown drag out, I wasn't going to stay in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I worked from there to try to find a way to reconcile you know, the positions of everybody where they can all live with it. It's very important, obviously, in my mind, uh, that that children have the least animosity to deal with. And it's also true of husbands and wives, children or not. You know, the, the, the more you can remove the animosity, the happier their life is going to be in the future. So, How much of a role can the attorney play in that process? You know, because there's... There's a lot of psychology involved in that. There's a lot of emotions, and and you're working on the purely legal side. I mean, do you feel like like a referee at some point? You know, au contraire, Jason. I don't think. <laughs> I, I think most of what 
you do as a lawyer, a good lawyer, is psychological is okay. in, in nature. And because you do have interaction with the other, uh, not not only the other attorney, the other uh, party, but also the counsel, the other lawyer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can work real hard at trying to soothe things, cool it down, not make a big deal out of things that are not a big deal. Biggest fights were always custody over the dog, though. <laughs> <laughs> People do love their dogs. Uh, um, how long did you practice family law as, well, like, full-time? I, I, as I said, I graduated in 1975, and I took the bench uh, of the 108th District Court 2009. Okay. So what is that, 30, 37 years? Okay. And you know, becoming a judge, taking that position, does that mean, I mean, obviously you're still an attorney, but does that mean you have to let go of all of that kinds of work? Absolutely. You know, uh, you go from a a gladiator, a warrior to a decision maker. Mm -hmm. And the question you asked makes me think how interesting it was for me to discover, you know, a couple of things. One, what I really believed about things because when you're a lawyer, you have to take cases that, you know, you're not necessarily right. believing in so much, but you still have to represent people. And the perfect example of that is, is criminal cases, you know. Uh, you know, you have to do the best you can for somebody who's been accused of a crime, but you not may not think that uh, what they accomplished was very righteous, if you know what I mean. Sure. And in family law, especially, of course, as a district judge, I have uh, authority over uh, all family law issues, uh, divorces, custody cases, child protective services, all that sort of thing. Additionally, I have uh, authority in civil cases, in major civil cases, I think it's uh, 250000 and up. I'm not sure. I can't remember, but. And then we also have, of course, felony jurisdiction, which really occupies probably ninety-five percent of our time really? anymore. Okay. Uh, and this thing concept that I just discussed carries over into family law because uh, I've discovered that I really don't like people who don't pay their child support, and I really don't like people who don't let them the other side see their kids. And I'm, I think I have a pretty good reputation for punishing those that don't want to do what they're supposed to do. Tell uh, me tell me about that decision to transition from being a practicing family lawyer to a judge. Um, because it is, I mean it's the same it's the same field, but it's a very different position, let's say. I, I never really even thought about it until a, a good friend of mine, Abe Lopez, resigned from the 108th and right. in the same newspaper article that uh announced that he was quitting, which was, uh, I'm going to say, well, anyway, the same article, same page, there were two other attorneys who I knew quite well, and both of them excellent lawyers, who announced that they were going to run for it. Well, I thought that was pretty strange, you know. How did they know and nobody else did? So, and it, well, anyway, that's what happened. And so I went to church that morning and a really good friend of mine came up and said, Woody, he said, you ever thought about running for judge? And 
I thought, I said, no, I wouldn't even think about it, you know? Because, again, I really did enjoy the gladiator part of my life, but it's very hectic. And so I went home after he said that, and I thought and thought about it, and I thought, you know what? I think I would like to be a judge. And that was the first I really ever even had it cross my mind. And so uh, I was lucky enough to win uh, the Republican primary, and the Republican primary was all there was because there wasn't a Democratic opponent, and uh, went from there. And you've been elected how many times since then? uh, Four. Okay. This is is the last of my – there's a geriatric rule, which is probably very appropriate, that you cannot practice – you cannot sit as a district judge – uh, after the last term you're in that when you turn 75. And okay. I turned 75 in uh, 2024, and that's the end of my term in December of that year. There's there's a lot of local drama that happens with some municipal elections, city council, mayor, all that kind of stuff. Is it the same when you're running for judge, or is it a little bit— I mean, Those are not always quite as high profile, I guess. People know— the people who are running for city, for the mayor, for the city council, they know a lot of that. Nobody knows anything about lawyers. And uh, so, yes, it's a different dynamic. You know, it's a lot of work to get out and and explain who you are compared to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think there is, you know, a kind of an offset of – Involvement that most that most people have with the legal profession, they really don't know that much, and usually they go to one of their friends who's a lawyer and say, "Well, who should I vote for?" You right. know that sort of thing. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true in in municipal elections. So, has has that shift in careers been fulfilling for you? Because oh, it's yes. a very it's very different from being the one who's arguing to convince, and then being the one who's making the decision. Yes, I, and getting back to that same thought, one thing I was going to mention is this, that uh, when you're an advocate, you are hell-bent on presenting the best part of your case and uh, trying to avoid any pitfalls that you have. And you, you really, as I said earlier, you have to really believe in your cause and to, to do that well, I think. When you're a judge— it's amazing because you're sitting up there and people think, well, you know, it's because they have the better lawyer or, you know, because uh, the person looks nicer or cleaner or that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But the frank truth of it is it just depends on what is being said and how it's being presented. Uh, and the amazing thing to me, frankly, is or was or has been, Jason, how often I'll be convinced that I've got this case all figured out when one side has presented their side of the case, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, well, I'm kind of a bore or not a bore, but it's kind of a waste of time to listen to the yeah. other side. And I'll be 10 minutes into the other side, I'll be going, I'll be darned. Hmm. That's amazing. And, you know, I'll change my whole opinion about things. It, it, it really is kind of amazing uh, metamorphosis of that part of it. Because, like I said, when you're the— lawyer and you're fighting your side, you don't see any good on the other side, sure. you know. How much do you have to keep abreast of the law 
you know, it's so, so complicated. There's so many different things. Things are changing all the time. It, I'm sure that, you know, there's that element. There's the element of the argument from a lawyer trying to convince you. But you also have to know, like, what what's in the books, you know? Right. I'll, I'll say this about a couple of things. I, I probably, I, I was really, really, really active in the family law bar, as I said. I was not only that. what I said, I was president of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. Uh, I mean, the Texas Academy. I was a member of the American Academy. Uh, and in that regard, I, I made many, many, many papers and speeches about everything you can imagine in family law. So I still keep really abreast with the family law uh, information. And I'm, I, I was part of the legislative process. And that's that's another story. <laughs> As they say, you know, it's like watching make sausage. It's yeah. unbelievable what you'll start with and what you end up with. But anyway, uh, so... Uh, that is just a passion of mine and has been. And criminal law, very much, because like I said, 95% of what I do is is criminal law now. Uh, it just seems like very few family law cases go to a jury trial and very few civil cases do anymore. So so uh, that's what occupies most of my time. Uh, in criminal law, I, I keep abreast of everything that comes out of the Supreme Court and court our local court of appeals pretty much. In civil law, uh, that's where you have the attorneys who are very adept at preparing uh, briefs for you to consider on one side or the other or both sides. And, of course, you do your own research as well. But it always is related to usually a single issue or some particular point in the law that they're, they're trying to address. Uh, the trial itself is pretty amazing because it, it, it moves so quickly, mm-hmm. and you got to make decisions so fast on admissibility of evidence, on uh, whether a particular witness can testify. Uh, you know, it's just it, it's really, really fast-paced. Most people, you know, are not going to be in your courtroom or appear in your courtroom. You know, if, if the majority of it is, is criminal law, you know, a lot of people are yeah, involved yeah, with exactly. that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I hope they're not. <laughs> we see a lot of lawyers on TV. We see a lot of judges on TV. We see a lot of trials on TV and movies. Is is it anything like that? Is it it's very like different that. from what we Not made? a bit, no. Uh, I have a, a standing rule, for instance. You see on TV people talking to the judge in the back room and all that kind of thing. I have a standing rule. I refuse to talk to uh, one lawyer without the other lawyer being present in the room. You know, that's just my deal. I also have a standing rule that, well, let me just put it like this. When I was a practicing lawyer, I had occasions where uh, issues were presented to the court that had to make they had to make a decision to conclude the case. Uh, you know, a division of real estate or property between mm-hmm. two two uh, competing parties, or whether to award uh, financial assistance to one of the uh, one of the participants uh, on a on an ongoing future basis. It, we used to never have alimony, but that came along as called spousal support now right. and uh anyway the long and short of the story is i had two cases that lasted a year while the judge was deciding how to make all these things happen and 
you know, they forget that these people are still married under yeah. our law. And so I have a rule that rain or shine, I rule in uh, not less than a week, period. Okay. That's it. I get it over with because I think people need closure in so many things. So in a, in a place like this and, you know, with the majority of the cases that come into your court being criminal cases, um, what, what kinds of cases are those? I mean, what are the most common ones? Meth. Really? It's mostly either uh, buying, selling, making, stealing to get, stealing to, uh, or, or breaking into somebody's house. All that is, is probably 60% of what I see. Really? Yeah. Uh, also domestic violence cases. They're horrible and, uh, and they're significant. Of course, I've got 17 pending murder cases right now. Really? Well, when I when I took my bench, I had eleven hundred cases that were still pending, and I had to get I had to figure out how to deal with. We uh, spent about a year and a half trying a case every other week until we got all those things. In fact, some weeks we tried two cases in a week. Now I average about two hundred cases uh, on my docket. And uh, I usually uh, that that lasts about three months before they have to go to trial, not but I get a hundred new cases every month too, so it's it's daunting. Yeah. I can assure you, you won't get through all those by the time you. Well, I'll get through the ones that are here, but I won't. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll get through those. I won't get through the ones I get in the last six months, probably, okay. but. Tell me about this district. How how big is it? The well, uh, in Amarillo, we have f- five district courts. Okay, one of those district courts also uh, encompasses Armstrong County and Randall County. That's the forty seventh district court. Two of the other courts have Potter and Randall district uh, jurisdiction, uh, and that would be the the three twentieth and the I'm sorry the hundred. 81st, the 251st, and then my court and the 320th are both the only two courts that are Potter County only, so we just have this one county. Is there a difference in the types of cases in general that come before the different districts? Well, uh, the word on the street is if you've got a personal injury case, you want to try it in Potter if you represent the plaintiff in, in Randall County. Uh, if you represent the defendant, because Randall is more rural and less inclined to pay out money than uh, Potter County. But I don't know if that isn't changing quite a bit, too. You know, I mean, we are uh, our counties are now virtually the same. Right. Uh, the same population. So. How do they get assigned to one court over the other? Believe it or not, a um, bingo b- uh, jar that uh, they reach into and whatever ball comes up, they uh, they have, well, like in civil cases, all five of us have, uh, and actually, well, anyway, five, five different balls. And so they reach in Just and like they don't know what it is until they pull it out okay. and it, whatever it ends up on, it gets put in. Is, is there any bearing if, if it's a... You know, a family that lives in Potter County would... Oh, I was just talking about that's what happens in Potter County. I think they do the same thing in Randall County. But uh, as far as if your question is, how how do you know whether it's going to end up in Potter or Randall County? It depends on where the the situs of the event took place. If it's a crime, wherever the criminal took place. If it's a 
personal injury lawsuit, wherever the wreck took place, whatever. Uh, or it can be where the defendant lives uh, in a civil case. They can choose to do that. I know that uh, that you're also involved um, in uh, a Texas Commission um, for Indigent People. Yeah, and I Te- wonder if Texas you could- Indigent Defense Commission. Tell me what that is and, and your involvement in it. Five years ago, the district judges and myself, including myself, came to realize just what a difficult time we were having marshalling the different lawyers who were still taking what we call court-appointed cases. Uh, That's a case where the person is indigent, can't afford a lawyer. The court is required to appoint counsel if they cannot afford it. And so probably, I'm going to say around 88 to 90 percent of the cases that we have have court-appointed lawyers. Well, we had about 30 lawyers at that time that were still accepting court-appointed cases in the serious cases. Mm -hmm. So I get more than any other court except the 320th. So I have about 28% of the the cases. And we all realize that we just, especially in first-degree felonies, which are carry punishment ranges from 5 to 99 years or life, and second-degree felonies, which carry a range from 2 to 20 years, we were getting fewer and fewer lawyers willing to accept those cases because they're difficult to handle. A lot of times these are people who are who have been in the business and in the system for a long time. Mm-hmm. They're very hard to deal with, very demanding, and you can understand that a lot of lawyers just decide it's not worth the trouble anymore. Sure. And so as we have gleaned through that or what we actually – Entertain was first we went to Lubbock. They had a uh, what's called a managed assigned counsel system in Lubbock. And of course, they had lots of lawyers because Texas Tech is down there, and a lot of lawyers stay there in Lubbock after they graduated. So they they had uh, essentially a, a court appointed system, uh, only they called it a managed assigned counsel. And they had an organization that dealt with all the issues that. Uh, had to address that. They had a budget, uh, and they were able to handle it. The other part in Amarillo that we were interested in was getting out of the responsibility of deciding how much people got paid for the work they were doing and uh, also trying to monitor who was doing an efficient and effective and appropriate job for these people who get charged with these major crimes because we did have some lawyers that were really not not exactly the best of the best those uh, lawyers are often the least experienced is well no true, yeah or? that too that but i mean they there's a they have to go through a series of of steps they got to start off with misdemeanors and go to okay to uh what called state jail felonies uh then to third-degree felony, second and first. And so once they've met the the requirements of those, then they were just automatically up. And some of them have been practicing for a long, long time, but we're not doing a very good job. So anyway, that was what was the impetus for this. And we went to Lubbock to study their MAC program, came back, uh, 
we put together a, an enormous group of people to uh, try to address it. I think there were 25 people in the beginning. I bet we met for a year, year and a half, and really came up with very few solutions. Then we had uh, input from a group called the Sixth Amendment Commission out of Minnesota who came in and did a full study that was sponsored by the American uh, Bar Association, and they were highly critical of our of our system uh, in that, first of all, they didn't think the judges should have any input into any of the decision-making about what should be paid or what's appropriate for these judges, for the lawyers, et cetera. And also they had uh, concerns about input that were, was presented to people in jail by members of the jail, the, the, the sheriff's office that uh, they felt like were uh, trying to talk people into pleading guilty to cases and, a lot of the criticism was appropriate. I didn't think that was, but that's another story. Uh, when that all happened, we uh, continued to meet, but we we uh, cut it down to a, a much more manageable group. We came up with a program that we called a hybrid program. First of all, getting lawyers to come to Amarillo to practice law without being paid by the county would be we felt like very difficult mm-hmm. to do. Uh, I don't need to tell anybody that's listening that graduating from law school, it's not unusual for kids to come out with $200,000 in debt yeah. and no job. And they can't even buy a house, much less throw up a shingle like I did and just start practicing law somewhere. The hybrid plan was to continue to have people that were charged uh, with crimes represented by some of the best or the better of the local attorneys who are already working in that regard, but also to uh, increase that group, a fellowship program where we brought other attorneys, uh, new attorneys from school, paid for by the county to start out, uh, well, actually start out to second chair and sit, sit with other attorneys who are doing major cases so they could benefit from the experience. And then they also would begin working on their own cases, first, of course, with misdemeanors and move up through the system to where after we're hoping like three to four years, they become proficient enough in uh, representing uh, major cases that they can go out and actually strike out on their own and They'll have a salary during the time they're with us. They'll have uh, benefits. They'll have uh, insurance, all of which I know is going to be something they're going to be looking forward to. The other half of this hybrid plan, direct employees of the county under what's called a public defender's program. Uh, Initially, we're going to have three public defenders. It's, It's going to expand to five. And they are going to be concentrated almost exclusively on the first and second degree cases. These are people that we we know to be quality lawyers, know their business, and uh, can come in and and get going right away. So that's the way it is. It's a hybrid plan. Uh, I think it's well-structured. The county has been kind enough to donate an entire floor of the uh, Santa Fe building. We've got an $800,000 Grant from 
the Texas Indigent Defense Commission, which sits in Austin, uh, and, and that was quite a process going through all that. They had to approve everything we're going to do. They have endorsed it, and uh, they, they're they going to provide half the cost of the program every year for the next four years, and then it'll be on us to continue. But and that's going to amount to about $800,000. So, When did that officially launch? The answer to that question is uh, two weeks ago we met, and this system will all be overseen by uh, an indigent commission that will be made up of area people. Uh, we have judges, we have mental health workers, we have a mental health, we have uh, somebody from the sheriff's department, we have practicing lawyer who does not take court-appointed cases, but is a very, very effective criminal lawyer. Uh, we have a former judge. We have 10, and then we have several people who are community advocates. Uh, we have a, a professor from uh, WT who teaches criminal justice. Uh, really, really a great cross-section of different people. We have a former jailer. Okay. Uh, and basically, we're those people are going to be charged with responsibility of actually putting the nuts and bolts of the plans together and also, of course, choosing the director of the MAC and the director of the public defender's office. All right. So that plan is like just now being Yeah. Oh, like and we're right in the middle of it. Then. You asked me a question. I was trying to get around to answering it. November 1, okay. they meet for the first time okay. to actually start uh, – a couple of weeks ago, we, we chose the people who were going to be on it, and they all agreed to meet, and then they're going to meet on the 1st of November. Okay. I, I want to turn it back uh, just to thinking about this area a little bit more, you know, as, as somebody who has such deep ties to Amarillo, who's been working here, and, you know, whether you're um, advocating on behalf of families, whether you're in a, you know, a, a position of, of making a ruling as a judge. I mean, what have you learned about this area? What what has your career kind of taught you about Amarillo? Because you've stayed here all of your life. You haven't gone anywhere else. I mean, no, that's true. Um, it, it's I'm sure it's given you a perspective on the city that maybe I don't have, and I, I wonder what that perspective might be. Well, you know, that's funny. I, I, I guess I guess I'm more provincial than the people who come in here and have moved to Amarillo and don't have the background that I have. To me, we're a very resilient people. We're very uh, dedicated. We're defiant and headstrong. That's what I think I'd say. You know, a perfect example of that is uh, anyone who was keeping up with the story realizes that Amarillo was not only the first area and and the the most— Involvement with the, the COVID vaccinations mm-hmm. in the nation, much less the state, and yet, so we were all headstrong to get in and do that. But now we discover that, you know, half the people haven't even done it, and therefore, uh, you know, we're one of the least effective groups. Yeah, we vaccinated faster than you know, anyone else, and then now we're less now vaccinated we're, than everyone else. Yes, which is exactly. so weird. Uh, that's what I'd say about okay. us. Uh, and you've, I mean, you've encountered that, I'm sure, in your courtroom. You've encountered that as an attorney. I mean, that 
that headstrong resiliency probably finds its way in, in well, good you know, situations and in the crisis situations it, it, that you It's funny you with. say that. I had a uh, mentor judge that I admired a lot, and I remember two things he used to always say. One is, you know, what you don't want to do in a ruling is give your thought process on it. I'll tell you why, because courts of appeal can make decisions on what you've ruled, but if you tell them why you ruled that way, they may think it differently and may think your thought was totally wrong. So his number one rule was shut up and rule, Hmm. because people need to get closure and they need to get it over with. So I'm very consistent in I rule. I get it over with. And the other thing, (laughs) he says... uh, I'm often wrong, but never in doubt. <laughs> that, <laughs> so that's me. I, I that, make a ruling, I'm, and I, I don't go home and worry about it. I don't. That seems healthy. Yeah. This episode of Hey Amarillo is also supported by Brick and Elm Magazine, the new hyper-local print magazine I helped launch back in May with Michelle McCaffrey. Our November-December issue came out a week ago. And the cover feature is all about words and reading and bookstores. And as a writer, all that stuff just makes me happy. I love this issue. If you like this podcast, you're also going to like Brick and Elm. Subscriptions to the print magazine are just $34.99 a year for all of our print issues. And and these aren't tiny little 30-page magazines. The last three issues have all topped 100 pages. If you don't subscribe, though, you can get single issues right now at retail locations all over the city in Amarillo and Canyon, including Burrowing Owl, Market 33, Purpose and Passion Boutique, Ant Eeks over on 6th Street, United Market Street, select additional United Supermarkets locations from 6th Collective out toward Bushland. You can get them at select Toot and Totems and Packasack locations and at Barnes & Noble. It's a long list. We're so glad to have so many good retail partners. So go pick up this issue and if you are interested in learning more, head over to brickandelm.com. Okay, I'm back with Doug Woodburn. Doug, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon, which I know you're familiar with. And Absolutely. it's the uh, largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes a fossilized Coelophysis, which is a 50-pound hollow-boned eight-foot-long dinosaur. Uh, you can learn more at panhandleplains.org or see the coelophysis at the museum. Um, okay, so eight straight. The first question, and, and you just touched on this briefly, but what's one thing the pandemic in the past 18 months have revealed to you about local people, you know, for maybe the position that you've been in? Well, like I said, I think they're resilient, they're dedicated, they're willing to go the extra mile for people. I do, uh, but they're headstrong. They you know, if they think it's the right thing to do, they're going to do it. And if they don't, they're not going to do it. You're not going to convince them. What does this area have too much of? Wind and wind generators. Okay. <laughs> Both of those things. Then. I get tired of seeing all the wind generators out on the Bush estate. And I, I drive by and see uh, the remnants of the wind generators being piled over next to I-40. I don't know if hmm. anybody else has ever seen that, but it just calls to mind, you know, we're spending a lot of money, uh, and I don't know that it's really accomplishing what it's supposed to. So, Although I believe Texas 
gets more power from, or at least more percentage of power from wind energy than any other state in the United States. So as a renewable source, it seems That's good to me, but you don't want to see them piled by the side of the road. Yeah. I wonder if sometimes our wind is, you know, days like this are, are too yeah. much for some of those. I'm sure they made a lot of money today, yeah. don't you? What does this area not have enough of? Well, the obvious answer is water. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say also uh, state resources, and I'd also say political muscle, you know, hmm. especially losing our good friend, Kel Seliger. It's uh, going to be a real blow. I hope uh, we're able to find a suitable replacement that's going to be able to take on the Midland boys. Did uh, did you ever have political ambitions beyond? No, I, like, as I said, I didn't really have any. <laughs> you didn't have those judge, ambitions no. in the first place. No, I really didn't. Uh-uh. No, I've not. Uh, I'll be eager to see what happens, who decides to, to run yeah, in I'll his be. place. Anyway, he, he was a close friend. I've known Cal for many, many, many years. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Well, I would say back to the same. We're tough. We're... Uh, compassionate, friendly, roll up our sleeves and get to work. That's mm-hmm. what we do. You know, and that is a, I don't know, that's a characteristic that I think a lot of folks, you know, uh, California and New England make me think of it, that you don't see it. When there's a lot of money in, a, in an area for generations, mm-hmm. then I think that lessens people's uh, appreciation for hard work. Hmm. And um, I I think that answers why we are so strong is because we've had to be. Yeah. And we're still fairly young, too. Well, we are. That's true. We're in an area of the the world of the country that was bypassed by every other group before all of a sudden, you know, finally, uh, you know, it was it was pioneered here. And uh, with the introduction of windmills and water from the Ogallala, which unfortunately is also being tapped too yeah. too strongly, you know, we've made a hard scrabble life out here. What's your favorite street in Amarillo? I like Sixth Street. I like going down there and having fun. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, there's a lot happening there. There is. I also like Polk. I like what's happening with Polk a lot because yeah. of my background, you know, when we were kids— in high school, it was a big deal to what we called um, drag poke. Yeah, yeah. You'd get in a car and you'd drive up and down poke for four hours, you know. <laughs> uh, and, of course, Amarillo High was right down the street. Sure. So that was our our world. And, uh, and, of course, in those days, every business was downtown. We didn't have malls. The first mall was uh, – uh, or the first shopping center was Wolfland Village. Up until hmm. then, there wasn't anything anywhere. And uh, I, I was reminiscing yesterday with uh, about several of the downtown business, the Hub, the White and Kirk, uh, Blackburn Brothers. Most of these things nobody even knows of sure. anymore. The, 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 we had the Esquire Theater. We had the State Theater. We had, you know, that was the place. That was humming. Yeah, but, that I, that just barely survived into... My lifespan. I remember going to Vance Hall Sporting Goods as a oh, kid, sure. uh, which was part of that at one point. But it, it by the time I came around, it was Norp's to Toyland. Do you remember it? I don't. I don't remember that. Right one. next door, it had a little. Anyway, well, what's your uh, what's your favorite local restaurant? Panhandlers. Imagine that. 
<laughs> I'm sure uh, you know, Jason, that uh, my, my daughter Lizzie and her cousin Livia started Panhandlers probably 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's in the bottom of the Emerald National Bank. And uh, it, it is really, really good food, very light fare. It's not heavy uh, and something different every day. Wonderful salad bar. So that's my favorite. And and Livia continues to do a lot of catering. I encounter her oh, all the sure. time, you know, a different thing. She's also uh, was so talented in what she did that the bank hired her to run their executive sure, yeah. uh, dining room. So, yeah, she's a, she's a delight. She's funny. Yeah, no, she's she's great. Um, what's your favorite local coffee shop? Palace Coffee. I like going there. You go to the downtown one. Mm-hmm. Is that that's kind of your neighborhood? Well, there, I guess. Or? I really, you know, I get most of my coffee at the office when I go there. <laughs> but if I'm gonna go get coffee, it's the downtown one. Okay, yeah, that's the only one. Uh-huh. And then uh, last question is: When was the last time you visited Paladuro Canyon? I went this this last summer. With my sister, who lives in New Jersey now, okay, she came out with a couple of her friends, and we went down to see Texas. Uh, before that, I, I had not been in a long, long time. When I was a kid, I, we used to go there at least two or three weekends during the summer. And in those days, you didn't have to book anything. You didn't have to uh, figure out where you were going to park. You just went where nobody else was. Yeah. And we had a favorite swimming hole that we used to go to, and it was really a delight, but those days are gone. Yeah, it's a, it's a popular place these days. Okay, uh, so, Doug, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one local thing that you want listeners to know about or to experience? If you haven't been to the Barfield building, hmm. you need to go there. It is an amazing place. It is. Uh, they have reconstructed so much of what was really, again, the heritage of our our town, including the speakeasy down below. Yep. You have to know a special way to even get in there. They don't just let anybody in. Uh, and they the cap food, it when it gets too crowded. They'll lock that door. I've, I've that's discovered. true. So, yeah, it's a, it's a secret. It is good. Their food is good. They've got cool, cool bars, a couple of them. And outdoor dining, or outdoor at least, uh, I guess it's a bar area too upstairs. So yeah, I think that's neat. It's worth a visit, even if you just want to pop in and look around. You know, see what's oh yeah, they'll show you everything. Uh Okay, well, Doug Woodburn, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Jason Boyette. Thank you. All right. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Doug for the interview, especially for giving me an hour of his time, despite the really busy docket for the 108th District Court. Thanks to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to my sponsors, Wick Realty, Brick and Elm, and especially Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring eight straight every week. This podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash Amarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Chris Selda, Barbara and Jim Witten, Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, Jason Burr, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, and Corey Burns. This has been episode 222. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.